Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Patty Rose. My guest today, for I think the third time, is candidate in Oregon's 4th Congressional District, Doyle Canning. Doyle, welcome to the show. Great to be here. This is really an honor. You were the first, I will call it major candidate, in a big uh, national seat that I ever had. And that means a ton to me that you were willing to you know, have the accessibility and to talk to someone like me that started this podcast. I was just a little boy with a dream (laughs) and it was, it it meant so much to me. And at that time we were doing it in person. That was pre COVID. You came to my house. My girlfriend was like, you better clean up. And, uh, that was an honor and it was great to meet you. And now I've followed what you've done in the, in the time since, cause you had, you've ran previously for the same office last time against Peter DeFazio, which was a huge undertaking and I don't think it's fair uh, to call a first-time campaign against a long-time incumbent if you're, if you're unsuccessful. I don't think it's, it's fair to call it unsuccessful. And we'll talk, to, talk about that in a bit. But Doyle, thank you so much for doing this. You are so welcome. It's great to be with you and always a pleasure. We're going to talk about your website. It's, uh, what is your website and where people can find more information about you? Sure. Canningforcongress.com. And we uh, have a lot of information up there about our priorities and issues about how to donate and how to get involved. And thank you so much for doing this on the road. You're in Corvallis right now. Is that correct? And you're about ready. Yes. You're doing an event in about an hour. That's right. We have our first day of door knocking uh, in the heart of the valley, working with our revolution Corvallis, the Sunrise Movement in Corvallis, and the College Democrats at OSU. And other friends, we have a full day of canvassing, talking with voters up here in Benton County about the importance of this election and why uh, voting for Doyle Canning for Congress is the right choice. And then afterwards, we've got a a concert, Concerts for Canning, up here in Corvallis, our first uh, big musical event, reaching out to the arts community and... uh, and having a good time. That reminds me at the end of this, I'm going to be promoting a local band that has an awesome show on the 18th of March. And I'll talk about that at the end. So we got to get into the issues and all the different things we're going to cover today, but it's impossible to not start off with Ukraine and talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think it's really important for people to say that first, the Russian invasion, because when you say Ukraine, it like almost makes it sound like it's a two way war and it's not, it's an Mm -hmm. invasion and just an absolute massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russia is now attacking civilians, including a children's hospital. It's getting really ugly and it's going to get a lot worse. Uh, 
I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this situation? Well, I share your uh, deep um, concern about the invasion of Ukraine and the violence uh, perpetrated against civilians there. Some of my earliest memories are going to anti-war protests with my mom against U.S. intervention in Central America. And your listeners may remember, you know, I was a strong voice in opposition to the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, and worked closely with the Iraq veterans against the war for many years. I've seen firsthand what happens to the people who uh, fight in a war and survive it and sometimes don't survive after they come home. I've lost folks to uh, cancers caused by the burn pits that President Biden talked about in his State of the Union address the other night and also to suicide. Um, that is why I don't believe that military action by the United States will bring about a long-term solution to this crisis. I stand in solidarity and in support of anti-war protesters across the U.S., across Europe, around the world, and even in Russia, who are risking their lives and their liberty to call for an end to this aggression. I uh, support the actions that Senator Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders are, are calling for and supporting, you know, targeting the oligarchs who are profiting from this invasion and, uh, you know, hitting them where it hurts, their, their yachts, <laughs> their luxury properties, um, their offshore bank accounts. You know, that is what uh, is going to put the pressure on uh, the people who are profiting from this violence and, and uh, war crimes. It's not just profiting for the oligarchs in Russia. Uh, I think American oligarchs, which we should call them, are profiting as well. You're seeing oil, you know, the gas prices are skyrocketing and there's mm -hmm. all this blame to go around. And I'm sure that Biden can take some. But the reality is, is that there's still record profits. And so it's like every single time the corporate gas companies are unwilling to take even a remote, small, minute hit, <laughs> you know. And so us as the consumers are stuck Mm -hmm. And I think you more than almost any candidate in this campaign would be somebody that would point that out because of the fact, you know, because that's what your stance is. It's about we need to rein in corporate profits. Mm -hmm. And so that's something mm -hmm. that I that's that's why I I haven't endorsed yet. And I, I said last time I wouldn't. But that's probably why I'm going to endorse you. And, and <laughs> Thank so you, Patty. so because it's it's the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren camps. You know, it's they're so popular with more people than just in the Democratic Party. And people don't understand that, that if we would have gone with a Bernie Sanders, there'd be a different slew of issues because every president has issues. But we would be doing a different strategy. And the strategy that we've done in the past is broken and is not working. So it's time mm -hmm. for something new. Mm -hmm. And that's a good segue into my next question about Peter DeFazio. Uh, if elected, you'll be replacing a legend. 37 years in office, Peter DeFazio. You ran against him in the primary, which I was excited to see that you put yourself out there and had the the gall to do it, you know, because a lot of people were probably not stoked that you did, and I personally was. But what does it mean to you to replace a legend like a Peter DeFazio? Well, when I decided to run for Congress in 2019, I did so knowing that it would be uphill um, and that it was also my goal 
to serve this district in Congress and to lead uh, with a progress, progressive values and a moral compass and a strong climate justice and, and racial justice platform in Congress. And that it, it's time for that kind of leadership for our country. And I am ready to lead in, in with those values. But I, I never could have imagined uh, in 2019 when I, when I made that decision, what 2020 had in store for us as a unprecedented global pandemic uh, shut down uh, the economy. And we were under a stay at home order during the most crucial weeks of the primary campaign of 2020. Uh, we, had, we couldn't do our field or outreach operations, no events. And our volunteers you know, were wondering how they were going to pay rent and feed their families and take care of children who were home from school and childcare is closed. And our country was forced to go into a kind of wartime survival mode under a president who was clearly not up for the task. And so, you know, what I learned most from the last election is that Oregonians are, are incredibly resilient. We have gotten through this. Our community is strong and we've done this together. And I'm very grateful for the over 17,000 supporters who supported me in the last election. And I'm looking forward to winning this election. In 2022, it's a new day. Uh, it's a new district. Our story is, is different. The opportunity is in front of us. As Representative DeFazio announced his very well-deserved retirement after uh, a, really a lifetime of service in Congress, our district's lines have been redrawn into what will be a bright spot for Democrats in a tough midterm election. And as progressives, we look forward to winning in May and winning in November. And I know that we have to elect a leader who has what it takes to turn out young people, those working class voters that you were just talking about, um, voters who have been disillusioned, feel um, disenfranchised by, by politics in general, and are looking for someone who's really going to speak the truth and, and has what it takes to fight for us and is unbought and unafraid. That's what it will take to inspire this district in November to come out to vote. And I'm the only candidate in this race who can do that. It's pretty wild to see how many uh, retirees on in both the Senate and the House. You know, for the House, there's a lot of Democrats that are not seeking reelection. And so there's going to be a huge changing of the guard. And it's about time, you know, and so that's a good thing. Hopefully it's a good thing. It could also mean some Marjorie Taylor Greens. You know, but uh, in the Senate, I think that the uh, Republicans are actually retiring a lot more. And so that gives some opportunities potentially for the Democrats uh, because it's so difficult to unseat an incumbent. I mean, it's just so as you know, you know, and and so I think your success uh, in the campaign was was there. And like you said, with all the things that you had to face with COVID and all that stuff, I think you did pretty well. And uh, so anybody I want to remind you, go to canningforcongress.com. Also all the socials, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and you can see all your work on the campaign trail, especially for the people that are now that we're going maskless for the people that are like, this is a time that I'm going to bunker down for another 30 days, at least to see kind of like what's going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of yeah, me too. So there's so there's a lot of people that that can follow you on socials that'll allow them to see kind of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's and we get have in- plenty of ways to get involved in the campaign uh, from home. Yeah, friend banks, phone banks, text banks. Um, you know, spreading the word about the campaign to people you know and to your neighbors who maybe you don't know, but it's a good reason to reach out. Also, donations. I mean, donating donating to your campaign, small amounts go a long way. And uh, obviously, you're not somebody who would take mag- major amounts. You don't have a pack, a super pack, or any of that stuff. So uh, let's talk about the issues. We've got so many to cover. I don't know how many we're going to get through. Uh, I think it's really long-term. I mean, this Russia-Ukraine situation is obviously the mounting issue. But long-term, the number one issue that faces everyone on the planet is climate change. And you have gotten high marks from the rural community uh, with your efforts against the Jordan po- the Jordan Cove pipeline. Tell me about what that entails. I mean, like, you know, all, all over your website, it says stood up against the Jordan Cove pipeline, but what does that mean? Well, you know, to remind folks, the Jordan Cove pipeline was a proposal that began 15 years ago by a foreign multinational fossil fuel company to build a pipeline that would cut across 280 miles of Southern Oregon um, and terminate with an LNG. At first it was an import terminal, then it was an export terminal, um, but a giant LNG liquefaction uh, facility on uh, on Coos Bay at, at Jordan Cove. And this project was opposed by the people who would be directly affected, the folks who lived in the path of this pipeline and along that route um, and who lived in the community and make their living from the bay. And so the the fight was bitter. It was long. It was very divisive. The fossil fuel company, you know, created AstroTurf uh, groups, you know, had an army of lawyers and lobbyists rained cash down on members of both parties uh, throughout the state. Um, that was their their strategy to bully, <laughs> bribe, divide, and get ultimately get their way. And they thought they could. You know, these companies had been turned back by opposition in places like Seattle and Oakland. Um, and they thought they could come into Southern Oregon and just, you know, bulldoze us. But they were wrong. <laughs> and a strong, powerful grassroots movement that started from nothing was able to stop a $15 billion fossil fuel company from bulldozing a 280-mile pipeline across our state. And this would have been the largest climate polluter in the state of Oregon by far, um, and would have involved taking Oregonians' land using eminent domain. And I, you know, I visited with those landowners. They showed me the paperwork. They said, you know, Pembina's lawyers have knocked on our door and said, if you don't sell out, we will take it. And here's how. Wow. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that, that's why I was in the fight. You know, it's about, it's about taking a stand against 
a big fossil fuel corporation coming into Oregon and trying to, um, you know, take away people's way of life and their very livelihoods and lands, not, not to mention the indigenous sites that would have been destroyed and the environmental justice impacts of the um, pump and storage facility that would be adjacent to uh, the Klamath tribes community um, and cause increased rates of asthma and cancer and, um, you know, pollute the air that young uh, indigenous Oregonians breathe. So it wasn't a hard choice for me uh, <laughs> to speak out against this, uh, against this fossil fuel project for all of those reasons, for our salmon, for our indigenous communities, for our climate. Um, but, you know, I'm the only one in this race who did at the time when the going was pretty tough. And I was the only one in this race, one of the only members of my party who was willing to really um, to take a stand on this and to call out members of my own party for their support, their support of this project or their sort of unwillingness to to speak out against it. Yeah. And you know, if you if you Google Doyle Canning, if you did, like I did preparing for this episode, that's the thing that's linked to your name the most, you know, that it's, you've gotten a lot of, of praise for the work that you did down there. You know, now with the Ukraine situation in Russia, uh, all the sanctions on Russia and oil prices going up because of the fact that I, I've heard different numbers, but three to 10% of our oil is imported from Russia. Uh, it's, there's a lot of push, especially for mainstream media to talk about how, uh, we need energy independence. And I guess Fox News is now saying that under Trump, we were energy independent, which is absolutely not true. But second of all, uh, what do you say to the people that think that that, you know, pipelines like the Jordan Cove pipeline would help, uh, you know, lead to energy independence? I mean, obviously, the the environmental costs are there. We need to focus on green energy. And there's so much more there today than even five years ago with access to hybrids and all these different types of cars for individuals. Mm -hmm. But what would you say to the people? Because there's a lot of push now to kind of say, oh, no, we need to start drilling at home. And there's a lot. It's almost like the Republicans were salivating at the opportunity. So what, what, what would you say to that? Well, I would say when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're an oil company, everything looks like an opportunity to drill. Um, and I wouldn't expect anything different from the oil majors who have always exploited every crisis to their advantage. Um, and in this case, you know, it's the price hikes that we're seeing are causing record windfall profits for the wealthiest fossil fuel executives in our country. Um, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste is kind of the motto of the C-suite at Exxon for sure. Uh, I've spent the last 20 years of my life organizing for our climate because we are, as you know, and as your listeners know, quite literally at the end of the runway for the amount of time that we have to change course. And the IPCC report that came out, you know, last week, one of many uh, that has just <laughs> ratcheted up the level of alarm and urgency. And we're just not seeing that level of urgency from our political leaders. And that is why I am running for Congress. You know, the, the United Nations secretary who, you know, announced the report said it was a um, damning indictment 
of failed climate leadership. That includes the United States uh, for sure and the United States Congress. Now, the scale of the challenge we face for getting our economy off of fossil fuels is staggering. But coming back to this, what we're seeing right now with Ukraine, like you mentioned, the U.S. doesn't have a lot of, doesn't have a, as much oil and gas imported from Russia as Europe does. For Europe, it's, it's really um, a far larger share of their energy mix. And so it's a tougher, it's a tougher thing to get off like that, right? It's going to take some time. But Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, who is supporting my candidacy in this race, you know, he argued uh, last week that you know, his, his op-ed in the New York Times was called Heat Pumps for Peace. Now, a lot of Oregonians have, and myself included, have recently installed um, heat pumps for heating and cooling. And they're so much more efficient than any kind of gas system and cheaper and better for the climate. And so he said, you know, we need to get heat pumps in every home in Europe uh, in order to get off of Russian gas in particular. And the European Union has taken up that, that idea and has put forward a proposal to transition all of Europe off of Russian gas using heat pumps in the next nine months. And so that sort of shows you, you know, when we have the urgency, when we have the wartime mobilization and the wartime footing that we need, we can get off oil and gas pretty quick. We have a lot of the technologies available now. It's a question of political will. And that is the political will and leadership that we have to build um, you know, in Congress. That's why I'm running for Congress. Most recently, I worked as a senior strategy advisor for Greenpeace uh, US and you know, advise the campaigners working on the Build Back Better uh, bill, trying to get the fossil fuel subsidies out of the bill. And Congressman Ro Khanna of California was our big champion there in opposing fossil fuel giveaways and subsidies in Build Back um, and trying to get the clean energy investments and renewable energy investments, energy efficiency, um, and a jobs core program into the bill. And we had to fight our coalition every, every inch of the way to the finish line in the House of Representatives. And we were, you know, we made a lot of concessions. We would have wanted more, you know, in an ideal world, but there were just a lot of things that had to happen in that bill. And we were working in coalition with labor, with the folks working on childcare, with the housing movement, immigrant rights movement, many, many folks who were pinning their hopes on President Biden and President Biden's agenda uh, of Build Back Better. And what happened to the bill? It, it, it's, it died in the Senate. Two senators, and- <laughs> two senators, two senators. And the senators get, they get so much hate for this, cinema and um, mansion, but 50, 50 Republicans, 50 Republicans are like, absolutely not. It's a non-starter. That's right. And then two Democratic senators that are, are always, you know, kind of like, they, uh, it's so irritating, but 50 Republicans, I mean, they're unwilling to do anything to fix anything ever other than their own pocket. Tax cuts. Yeah, tax cuts for, for the wealthy. <laughs> for big corporations, you see like immediate action from Republicans so, um, yeah. under Trump. And, you know, but these priorities that we need now, 
in our district. Affordable housing, childcare, investments in climate jobs. You know, this is this is what we need today now, and we ha- we don't have it because one senator is more focused on the fossil fuel industry's profits and his own personal profits in the coal industry than on delivering for our country, for our climate, for his own constituents. And that is the kind of leadership we can't afford in Congress now. And we have an opportunity in this race to choose something better. And that is why I am in this race. That's why I'm in it to win. And we need leadership now that is unbought and is ready to work across all of those constituencies to move this agenda forward with the urgency and with the conviction that is needed to get it done. So let's move on to Medicare for all. This is something that's not even really being talked about a lot. It's kind of kind of on the back burner for a lot of people, but for me, it's still very high on my list, if not the number one issue. Uh, Obamacare, which though not perfect, did help millions during the pandemic. And uh, I don't think people even realize the significance of how much that helped during the pandemic. And why... Uh, why is, you know, I just want to talk about why a single, pay, single payer program should have been done a long time ago. And, you know, is it even possible to make Medicare for all a reality? Yes, I believe that it is. And it, it is the case in every other industrialized nation. And so it is absolutely possible to adopt a single payer system like Canada and, uh, you know, countries in Europe, Australia. I mean, this isn't rocket science. This is being done in other countries and is routine. Well, I think we're seeing it here. I think we're seeing it here with Mm -hmm. COVID, you know, with, Mm -hmm. I mean, COVID, because a lot of the time, I don't know exactly, but I know that some of the things have not been, uh, you have not been billed for some of the things with COVID, you know, like COVID testing and all these different things. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it would look like if you need the service. we've, We've seen, you know, again, with the kind of wartime footing, like we've seen, the possibilities, what is possible when our government, our country acts with urgency in the face of a crisis. And so, you know, Operation Warp Speed for the vaccine, you know, every other vaccine has taken at least five years to develop. And uh, we were able, as a country, the best scientists in the world were able to work together to provide this life-saving medicine in in record time and then roll it out to millions of Americans in a number of weeks. Um, That's incredible. Like we can do incredible things under under leadership that acts acts with urgency and is willing to put our interests as a a people, as a country ahead of of corporate profits or um, bogged down bureaucracies. And so, you know, that's the kind of leadership we need for healthcare in this country. I am very passionate about Medicare for all because the cost of healthcare cost my mother her life. She had a chronic uh, condition. She died underinsured um, because she lost full coverage after she lost her job. And no one, no family should ever have to go through that. No family should ever have to put up a GoFundMe for their loved one who is struggling with with cancer. Um, You're going through enough when you're going through cancer to worry about the cost. And the costs are astronomical 
will bankrupt a family into the next um, generation. So not only will I support Medicare for all, but I'm the only candidate in this race who has actually worked to advance Medicare for all as part of the uh, campaign that won the very first single payer statute uh, in a state in the United States. And that was in Vermont. And you know we were able to win Green Mountain Care, a, a plan for a single payer system in Vermont. But you know what? Vermont is a very small state <laughs> and wasn't able to have a pool big enough to actually make that work. And so, you know, we saw the limits of a state by state kind of approach. And it's exciting that we're talking about doing a single payer approach here in Oregon. We can learn from what happened in Vermont. And I'm in full support of doing that. I support Ro Khanna's bill that would kind of unlock federal funds for states that want to do a single payer in their state. But what about you know, states like Alabama, where, where the governors won't even expand Medicaid. With the, they leave the money on the table. They'd rather people go without care than, than you know, accept the, the, the programs that are, that are available now. And so we need a national single payer program. Uh, the chair of that Congressional Progressive Caucus, Jayapal and Senator Sanders, working on this for a long time. And it's more popular than ever. You know, here in Oregon, 75% of voters, Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody supports Medicare for all. So yeah. why isn't it getting done? Yeah. When politicians are taking money from those who are profiting from our current uh, for-profit healthcare system, health insurance companies and lobbyists, we won't see action. Right. And we've learned that. And so it's time to learn from that and elect the candidate who is endorsed by every single payer group who has endorsed in this race. Oregon single payer advocates, Medicare for all Lane County, Progressive Democrats of America, Our Revolution Oregon, the Sunrise Movements. These are the groups that have been in the fight for Medicare for all. And that's why they're backing my candidacy in this race. You mentioned Ro Khanna a couple times, and I don't know if a lot of people know. I know you're a who fan. He is. I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Ro Khanna. California is has great representation in a few of their seats in Ro Khanna, which Google R O K Ro Khanna. Just Google Ro Khanna, and then Katie Porter is awesome as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's some great people, and Ro Khanna is incredible. And I wish I thought that he could be president one day, but our country is, well, we won't get into that. But anyway, so uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I just think it's one of those things when something's working, sometimes we don't realize it. And I want to just drill this home that under COVID, uh, the way the government stepped up actually worked. It actually worked. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously people that still fall through the cracks, but so many less did. And if, mm -hmm. can you even imagine if people had to pay for their COVID tests or if people had to pay for all these things? And so sometimes credit doesn't get do, get given because we don't have a person like Donald Trump that will tote all of his successes at every opportunity. You know, Operation Warp Speed, he deserves some credit, but he was, he was working on that simultaneously while he was, he was still campaigning somehow as president, which was weird, but also saying the whole entire time he's talking about how it's a hoax which is creating, you know, it, it was, it's just, it's insane. It was very chaotic. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> and 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 there's a very real fear and we didn't actually touch on this but there's a, a threat to our democracy with a Donald Trump mm-hmm. and there's a very mm-hmm. good chance that he gets reelected a very very good chance that he gets reelected which is going to be wild so we'll see and we'll talk about that when the time comes cuz I definitely will have you back on closer to that time uh we got to move on housing is an issue that is the the number one issue in Eugene there's no question uh you know, there's some good news that's been coming out about the rental protections programs that some of the funding's there, but it's been, there's been a lot of hiccups mm-hmm. and maybe this is an issue there have where been a lot of, yeah, hiccups. maybe this is an issue where government hasn't completely been efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we get programs like the rental protection program to be more efficient? That's a good question. You know, I think if we have leaders who believe in housing first, and who understand that housing is the unlock to so much more um, that that people need to to get on their feet. You know, whether it's uh, treatment, health healthcare treatment, um, addiction treatment, employment opportunities, educational opportunities, like all of that is incredibly difficult to pursue when you're living in your car. And housing first or couch couch I, surfing. I always want to drill um, this home because real quick with housing first, I didn't know what that meant. Right. And so I had a woman from shelter care on, which was an incredible episode. And I encourage mm-hmm. anyone in Eugene Springfield needs to listen to that episode because we really thoroughly covered it. And I didn't even know what it was. And that's why I do this show is because I want the average person to not just hear this political jargon to some people. It, it seems simple to, to a lot of people, but it's not to a lot of people. So housing first, what it means is that we're going to get somebody into a home and then we will work on what got them homeless, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. their addiction or whatever financial situation that they found themselves in. It's really simple, but to a lot of people, it's not. They just hear these things and they're just slogans and they don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Housing first is working and it started in Utah. And Mm -hmm. so it's not, it's something that, that uh, obviously Utah is a red state. And so, you know, it's working in places where people are, compassionate and have empathy and props to the Mormons on this one, I guess, Mm -hmm. but they are literally like, we are going to do something to help these people because it's the right, the right thing to do, you know? So anyway, so housing first is the model that we are going with and it's working and we're seeing it in Eugene, but yeah, the rental protection programs, some hiccups and Kevin Cronin is somebody that I had talked to at length about that and he's doing great work. And there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. in our community doing great work and we're starting to see a lot of results. So Mm -hmm. we got to move on. But I think that, you know, there are a lot of incredible uh, leaders in our community fighting for solutions to our housing crisis. But I think, you know, the reason why I'm running for Congress is because a community like Eugene or Corvallis or even the smaller towns in our district can't solve this crisis alone. We need acts of Congress that will unlock the, the, the federal treasury to address the housing crisis. Because it's not just us. You know, Eugene does have the most unhoused people living on the street per capita in the United States. A shameful, a shameful distinction. Um, but we're not alone in this. Homelessness is growing on the West Coast faster than any other region of the U.S. Um, but... Rents are rising everywhere. Home prices are rising everywhere. Um, our generation is really feeling this squeeze in a way that previous generations uh, never did. And we need government intervention 
um, to make sure that people can afford to keep a roof over their head. Um, so that's about wages, but it's also about the availability of affordable housing. And I'm the only candidate in this race who has a long history of fighting for the right to housing. I advise the founding of a national movement called Homes for All that was founded in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis when we saw the ways that private equity firms and Wall Street, you know, first they foreclosed on people and evicted, then they bought the properties and rented them back. Um, and, you know, the kind of movement of Wall Street into the housing market has had ripple effects throughout. And that's kind of what we need to look at and look at uh, dialing back, um, as well as making major investments in public housing, affordable housing, and incentivizing uh, communities like the ones in our district to, to, to build more affordable options. And so, you know, Homes for All has a signature bill now in Congress. It was our dream you know, 12, 15 years ago when we first started to have a champion in Congress who would introduce a piece of legislation that would truly aim to end homelessness in the United States. And, uh, and that is a piece of legislation I will fight for when I serve you in Congress. And a lot of these things go hand in hand. You know, you have Medicare for all. If you have mm -hmm. people not losing their home because they have mounting medical, medical bills, debt. Yep. you know, and then Joe Bernie was on the podcast and talked about uh, the work that he was doing to make sure that people that were living in a, uh, in a uh, mobile home park that they were going to lose mm -hmm. their home, you know? And so he was like, no, 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 we're going to, we're going to help out here. And so he stepped in and, and, and with the work of some other people too, but he stepped in and he kept people in their home. And it's like, how, mm -hmm. how, what a, what better way to keep people from, or to deal with the homeless situation than to keep people in their home before they even get to that situation. So that's, that's something that th all these things go hand in hand, you know, and that's why I supported Bernie Sanders. So, vehemently and that's why I'll, I'll why i think that his platform has has people like you are following the same similar platform you know and we're inspired by it and different people doing the same kind of work like a rokana but we do have to move on so let's talk about lgbt rights uh this is not something that's as protected as people think at all mm -hmm. especially for the trans community because i don't think that they've ever had full rights you know and mm -hmm. uh governor DeSantos in florida just passed a bill that's as it's disgusting. It's we're it's being called the don't say gay bill. Gay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and he has a really good likelihood of being the candidate. If it's not Trump, it's going to be DeSantos mm -hmm. for president. Mm -hmm. And he's an asshole, first of all, and doesn't have any empathy whatsoever. But these kind of bills are not just mean spirited. They're, they're dangerous, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the Texas bill that, you know, criminalizes parents who affirm the gender of their child. I mean, it's just, um, it's the stuff of nightmares for a parent. Yeah. Um, and then, the, you know, there's been bills that have been talked about where, I don't know the term, the actual term, and I wish I did, but about trans uh, sex workers where mm -hmm. it's like, it's okay to kill them if you find out that they're trans, you know, and stuff like that, that's been proposed. I mean, these are disgusting things where it's like, if you're in a situation where you're, with a sex worker and then they re then you realize that they're not the gender that you thought, then you can basically that's, that's fair game for you to kill them. I mean, that's literally been proposed. These are proposals. It's really, really disgusting, you know? And, 
ah, I, you know, my mom was a lesbian. This is LGBT rights or something near and dear to my heart because I watched as she passed away right before marriage equality. And I wonder because she, she died from a broken heart from, from loss mm. of income, loss of, and a pill addiction. I mean, straight up with the, the mm. opioid crisis. And, and so I just wonder what would have happened had she seen that legislation. It could have given her a little bit of jolt of joy because of the fact that she never thought that that was possible. Mm. So I don't even know where the question is in this. And I don't even know if that needs to be asked because I know that it will continue to be a champion of, of LGBT rights. And so I just wanted to at least mention it, that it's something mm -hmm. that's so important. Uh, let's talk about childcare real quick. Your website says that if you hadn't had childcare, uh, some figured out childcare that you wouldn't have been, been able to go to law school and then now run for Congress as a mother. It's pretty obvious, but why is this issue or these issues so important to you? Childcare, education, and parental leave. Well, that is true. Uh, much like Senator Warren, you know, I had been accepted on a scholarship to the university of Oregon school of law and my children were one and three at the time. And if I didn't find childcare that we could afford, that was reliable and that I could trust and count on, um, I never would have started or finished law school and I wouldn't be here today. And so I'm incredibly grateful that I was one of the lucky ones who was able to access childcare through the university. Um, you know, a, a very high quality and affordable childcare program that was that was for, for students and faculty and graduate students at the University of Oregon. Um, but even, even so, you know, the cost of their tuition uh, put, us, put us in a lot of debt. You know, their tuition was more than mine, okay? <laughs> and so Oregon childcare, you know, costs are more expensive than college. And so for families who are just starting out, I mean, I've talked to plenty of people young people uh, on the campaign trail and just, uh, just in the community who tell me straight up they want to start a family, but they can't afford it. Now, how did we come to live in a country where having a family is seen as a luxury only for the rich? Like that is just fundamentally wrong. Who are we as a country? If that is the case, the greatest joy um, of life uh, you know, having a family becomes a privilege. And that's where we are today. Uh, my family has struggled like all families during the pandemic and all families I know uh, with the closure of schools, the closure of childcare, um, just the, um, the chaos that's created in your life when you don't have the routine that you need um, for your, for your young kids. And um you know, we've seen now with record job growth under President Biden, which is which is wonderful, but still uh, employment for women in particular and moms in particular is, is lagging behind. And that is because we don't have a comprehensive approach and, and funded system of childcare in this country. And that's something that Senator Warren has been really an outspoken champion for. You know, she has a plan. Uh, to create a universal system of childcare, in addition to universal pre-K, um, for every for every kid in this country who needs it, and um, that's something that I will I will be a champion for because I have been there. Well, and and that's um, something that I think yeah. why it's so important that we have more women in leadership roles because this is an issue that it seems to be just not high on the list for many men. 
you know, and because it's not, they're not on the hook. I'll be the first to say it. You know, I'm a step parent, so I have a cop out because I came late in the equation and, and my partner, uh, she, she does 99% of everything with the kids. They're adults now, but I mean, just watching what she's done. And, and I mean, it's part of the reason that I was attracted to that is because I watched my mom do it. And my, my dad was always there with the support of money, you know, but no emotional support, you know? And mm-hmm. so, so I, I don't know. I just have always had such a deep, you know, respect for moms and, and I was a mama's boy. I still am, <laughs> you know, but so, yeah. Uh, there's I mean, also- I think the other deep respect we need to extend in this conversation is our deep respect of early childhood educators yeah. and yeah. child care yeah. givers. It's a profession that is undervalued in our country, in our society, because it's typically done by women and women of color. Like, let's be real. And, you know, I studied early childhood education when I was in college and I, you know, there's still a million things I don't know. The complexity of brain development for infants and young children is, um, is there are many fields within it, right? This is when human beings go through our greatest um, leaps cognitively in our entire life. And what happens in those early years will shape what's possible for people going forward. And so, you know, quality, consistent care uh, during the early years of life is so important and that work is so valuable. And so we need to make sure that our childcare solutions are compensating yeah, childcare providers. Paying our well, teachers, yes. making, yeah. Making sure that they have um, the benefits, health benefits um, and student loan, you know, support that they need because, you know, a good early childhood educator um, has, you know, there's a great program at Lane uh, one of the best around, um, it's not free. And so, you know, if you're working in this field, you've invested, um, to make that possible. And so, you know, you should be able to not just get by, but make a good living. I also want to give a shout out to the men that teach because there's a lot. And I think it's super important to have male figures in your life when you're young, uh, young Mm -hmm. children. My stepson is, is studying education. Now he's transferring from LSU or from LSU, uh, LCC to OSU. Uh, this term and he's he's wanting to pursue childhood education he's also he wants to teach teach in africa it's been a dream of his since he was three years old so we'll we're going to support him in 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 pursuing that goal uh so i mean i think it's important to have a broad representation for of teachers you know just like anything else and and i think you know i think it's really good so shout out to the men too don't get me wrong i'm not saying that it doesn't exist i had some great male teachers that were really awesome my homeroom teacher uh homeroom teachers over the years were usually women and and they were, they become like a motherly figure in your life. So, uh, we have one more issue to talk about before we get out of here and that's going to be abortion rights. Uh, this is something that we could see the re you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade within the calendar year. And I don't think people realize this, the Supreme court, which there is a chance that the new, uh, Supreme court justice that Biden is going to appoint does not change the numbers. You know, it just Mm -hmm. brings more representation, to the to the uh mm-hmm. committee but it doesn't or to the court but it doesn't change the numbers so it doesn't help with this and we'll see if he's even able to get that pushed through i think that that's going to be a lot harder than people realize but uh what can be done to ensure women's right to health care choice mm-hmm. i think everyone should be asking that question right now <laughs> and you know i think 
I think about my grandmother and, you know, she lived before a time of Roe v. Wade. You know, she lived during a time when abortion was criminalized and told me about what that was like for her and the women, other women of her generation. Um, And, you know, to her last days, she was a donor to Planned Parenthood, you know, just a little bit every year because of how much that meant to her and how much it's meant to me. It's a right we can never take for granted. Reproductive justice is the fundamental right of all of us, regardless of our gender or sexual orientation or circumstance, race, income, you know, to decide for ourselves when we want to start a family with who, under what conditions, um, that is our choice to make, not anyone else's. And um, that has been the law, the law of the land for two generations. And it's all on the line right now for the reasons you say. And so Congress needs to act to codify Roe v. Wade into statute um, because right now it's only through a Supreme Court precedent, um, which makes it vulnerable to being overturned by a conservative court that has been stacked by Trump. Uh, and by, by Democrats, Mitch McConnell, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Democrats, you know, should have done this a long time ago. And it's it's it could happen today. You know, the bill to codify Roe v. Wade could be passed today with our majority in the House, our majority in the Senate that we fought so hard for in Georgia, and President Biden. But it's not going to happen because of the filibuster and the unwillingness of the leadership of my party to stand up and say, you know, these these norms of the Senate (laughs) are less important than the fundamental right of reproductive health and justice. And we are willing to take down the filibuster rules to pass a a law that would codify this right into the United States codes. And um, there's an unwillingness to do that. And that's why I'm running for Congress. Because right now, with so much on the line, we need leaders who are willing to uh, do whatever it takes to protect our rights, trans rights, reproductive rights, um, the epidemic of violence against black people in this country and people of color. You know, we need leadership. And that's why I am in this race. Well, canningforcongress.com is the website. I know you got to get going because you have an event to go to. I appreciate. I got some doors to knock. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you coming on so much, and it's really awesome to get to talk to you. And uh, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing and the work that you're doing. And I, again, follow Doyle Canning, uh, Canning for Congress on all social media uh, sites. There's so much cool stuff that you're doing, and this this campaign's gonna be great. If you'd like to volunteer, there's ways that you can find out to volunteer on the website canningforcongress.com. Uh, I want to say some things real quick before we get out of here. I just recently launched a Patreon. So if you'd like to sponsor the, the podcast, you can be a small donor of $5 a month. And then there's different tiers, which you get uh, uh, royalty or loyalty rewards, like a free coffee mug and some other things. If you want to do a little bit more, nice. you can go to patreon.com, uh, patreon.com slash strpod. But the link will be in the show notes. 
And so, yeah, I just launched it. There's going to be some exclusive behind the scenes content as well. And also what I'm planning on doing for the top tier is a monthly uh, meeting, like a Zoom call with all of the people in that so that they can have Q&A and can drive the content of the show. So I think that should be really fun. It's something that I'm just launching today. I just literally launched that this morning. So go to the website. You can also find it at strpod.com slash sponsors, which is my website, uh, strpod.com. And you can find a link to the Patreon. And it's really easy. You, make, you create a little account. And you can make a, a, a monthly donation. And I think the way that it works is after you've been a, mo- a member for three months, you start to get rewards. So that should be really cool. Also, you know, I want to... We're going to end this with a song, and I wanted to um, encourage everybody to check out this band. It's a local band called Thinking About You Underwater, and they're going to be at Sessions Music Hall on f- Friday, March 18th at 7 p.m. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. Uh, it's a really, really cool band, local band, and you get to hear a little bit of it today. And so, yeah, that band, Thinking About You Underwater, will be at Sessions Music Hall Friday, March 18th at 7 p.m. I think they're opening, so you got to get there early, the local band. And then there's, a, I think, a touring group. So Doyle Canning, thank you so much. It's such an honor. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, please check out our uh, website, canningforcongress.com. Make a contribution of any amount. Uh, it all adds up. It all matters. Uh, and, and follow us on the social media. Reach out to me anytime. We'd love to get you involved in this campaign. You know, we are running a grassroots people power campaign with people like you you listeners out there, yeah. you know, talking to your neighbors, maybe for the first time ever to say, look, this is a once in a generation opportunity. We haven't had an open race for Congress here in this district since 1986. And we won't get one again for maybe another 37 years. So now is the moment. Yeah. We can't wait for new leadership. And that's why I'm running. I'm counting on your support. Thank you so much. Is it too late to register to vote? Do you know? I mean, uh, absolutely okay. not. <laughs> okay. So, so definitely go uh, register to vote. And it's super easy to find. If you just Google register to vote in Oregon, there's, you know, there's ways to register. Yeah, the to Secretary vote. of State's website is where you go and it, they yeah. make it really easy, um, which is a great thing about living in Oregon, uh, unlike other states where there are more and more barriers to exercise your right to vote here, you can register online. Yeah. And you do have to make sure that you're registered as a Democrat if you'd like to vote for Doyle in the primary. Uh, And if you're not a Democrat and you want to change it later, you can, but you can register as a, as a Democrat in the primary so that you can vote in the primary. That's how how our system works. And you know, we, at a later date, we can talk about open primaries, but (laughs) so Doyle Canning, thank you so much. I'm going to end this with a song. This is the song Tsunami by Thinking About You Underwater. Underwater.